This is the Faculty Focus Live podcast, sponsored by The Teaching Professor. I'm your host, Tierney King, and I'm here to bring you inspiration, energy, and creative strategies that you can utilize in your everyday teaching. Today we're going to talk about racial justice, the relationship between food and culture, and a type of plan-do-check-act cycle for diversity, equity, and inclusion work. To start, Santos Felipe Ramos explains how food is so intertwined with culture that it makes for an effective method of inquiry into racial identity and racial disparities. In his seminar, Understanding Racial Justice Through Food Studies. Uh, so food is, is one of the essentials of life. It's uh, frequent indulgence, it drives economies, and it's really an intimate element of our social relationships. It's hard to imagine a positive social experience that doesn't involve food, yet food is also a great cause of anxiety, stress, and even death. Many people struggle with uh, eating disorders uh, or have to uh, distinctly unpleasant memories that they associate with food. Certain foods are unhealthy and lead to all sorts of health problems. And in this sense, Food connects in some way to almost every aspect of life. Uh, the Department of Agriculture has defined food insecurity as a lack of consistent access to enough food for an active, healthy life. And so I, I want to take time to highlight some of the findings from a really key study that is looking at uh, food insecurity on college campuses. This is a study from 2016 that surveyed uh, about 3,800 students at 34 different community colleges and four-year colleges across the country, across 12 different states. And the study found that 22% uh, of the respondents experienced the very lowest levels of food insecurity. So that's nearly a quarter of students experiencing, there are different levels of food insecurity, uh, nearly a quarter of students were experiencing the lowest levels of food insecurity. Uh, and the study also found that 13% of respondents at community colleges uh, reported being homeless. And so we know that there's a link between these two things. When students experience housing insecurity, they also oftentimes experience food insecurity. Now, just to sort of unpack that data a little more, 48% of the respondents reported food insecurity in the previous 30 days. So it was the 22 experienced the lowest levels, but 48 of respondents overall had experienced food insecurity of, of some kind very recently. 57% of Black or African-American students reported food insecurity compared to 40% of non-Hispanic white students. So we see a clear disparity in this study, which has been suspected and also you know, reinforced by studies that exist outside of college campuses as well, that uh, communities of color on college campuses also are experiencing uh, things like food insecurity at disproportionate rates. Further, 56% of all first-generation students were food insecure. Uh, among the respondents from four-year colleges, 43% of meal plan enrollees still experience food insecurity. So we see that uh, first-generation students tend to experience more food insecurity, and that enrolling on a meal plan is not necessarily going to guarantee that students are not 
going to face hardship when it comes to finding uh, healthy foods. Roughly 14% of all households experience food security each year. So these are, are just some broader kind of uh, broader statistic here. And the available literature suggests that the rate of food insecurity among college students is up to four times greater than the national average. So we really are looking at here, uh, not only a simple translation of society's larger problems with food insecurity and, and people of color experiencing higher rates of food insecurity, this is all exacerbated according to the, the data we have so far on college campuses. So this is really an issue that uh, uh, needs to be addressed. And just some other sort of demographic information on uh, college, uh, on higher education. Uh, in recent years, nearly half of all undergraduate students now are, are BIPOC students, so black, indigenous, or people of color. Uh, native and, and Black students are much more likely to borrow and much more likely to face uh, difficulty repaying their loans than other groups. So we know that, that many students are, are having to take out a massive amount of loans in order to fund their education. Um, and, and, you know, looking at the racial breakdown of this, Native and Black students in particular are having to take out uh, many more. And in terms of faculty, uh, this is just one sort of specific look at faculty dynamics, but it it's, uh, uh, speaks to some of the disparities that exist uh, for full-time assistant professors in a recent study uh, was found that 73% identified as white, 14 as Asian or uh, Pacific Islander, 8% black, 6% Hispanic, and less than 1% American Indian uh, or Alaska Native. Right, so uh, what we see is that there, there's more and more, I mean, one of the reasons that the, these statistics are, are so troubling is the, the student body is becoming more and more diverse. And uh, it, it would seem that therefore, then food insecurity is also going increasing as, as a problem as well. And what we see at uh, faculty levels is that the further along in, in, in uh, the careers that faculty are, essentially the less and less people of color that we're, being, that we're seeing. So there's less faculty to uh, mentor students uh, in the, in, through their programs um, that, that can connect with them in that way that might be able to support them, that share those sort of cultural understanding with them. So finally, we wanna talk about some of the, the, the solutions to uh, these issues that um, have been tried by uh, uh, different activists and scholars. In general, increasing access to fresh foods, uh, localizing food systems as much as possible when it makes sense to do so, and experimenting with new uh, business structures such as worker-owned co-ops. Some solutions that are more specific to uh, campus food pantries where uh, students can come and get free food and other supplies uh, have been really taking off in recent years. In 2009, there were less than 10 reported food pantries across uh, the country. Today, there's more than 350. So uh, there's good and not really bad, but just you know, understanding food banks and food pantries in, in the larger context. Food pantries help to address a, the most immediate need, which is the fact that there are hungry students on campus. Um, but this should not be seen as a structural solution to the problem. Rather, this is addressing a symptom, 
right? So this isn't the way to end hunger. This isn't the way to end these issues, but it is something that can really be beneficial to students in the most immediate sense. Uh, increasing access to heritage and fresh foods on campus. So thinking about, yes, on the one hand, what restaurants are available and do students have different kinds of options? That's important. But I would also think of it in terms of what can, where can students buy groceries and uh, what do cooking spaces look like for students on campus? Um, and just considering all of that stuff sort of together, because when students are able to access a wider number of groceries, not only is it oftentimes cheap, cheaper for them, but they can also be cooking foods perhaps that are, are more culturally relevant to them as well. Uh, dining center donations, so rolling over meal plans, uh, just trying to make sure that if and when possible, instead of uh, when a meal plan ends, if it's not fully utilized, allowing those uh, to sort of roll over, perhaps even donating the rest of those uh, unused uh, tickets to the, the food pantry on campus, and then the food pantry can give those out to students in need. Uh, there's also campus gardens, farms, uh, emergency grants that can be uh, granted to students. Uh, addressing the cost of tuition on college campuses. We're getting back into uh, some of the big picture items here. Um, thinking about how to redistribute internal funding. Uh, again, grants for students of color, first gen and other marginalized students. And then a very practical thing that uh, can be done just in sort of interpersonal interactions, asking for, for dietary restrictions and, and making to, sure to order a variety of foods. So if you're asking for, there's a variety of reasons why somebody might have a dietary restriction. It might be uh, for health reasons. It might be for just personal preference. It might be uh, spiritual or religious uh, reasons for uh, why people have uh, a particular food restriction. So uh, communicating with people, especially in terms of event planning and helping to, to stay informed as you're planning that out so that it's inclusive of uh, lots of different people. As Ramos offers these specific solutions and ideas that you can start to think about, it's also important to consider how you can see both subtle and significant gains with DEI work on your campus. In this session, Stephanie Delaney offers a multi-step process for narrowing DEI work from a huge multi-generational project into something obtainable each week. The problem that we are facing is these gigantic issues that we may be trying to solve around diversity, equity, and inclusion. At the same time, we're trying to manage the constant onslaught of daily work, for example, emails and telephone calls and back-to-back -back meetings when you're having to manage those little but constant activities, it's really hard to take care of those big long-term issues uh, that can so easily escape us as we uh, attend to the urgent actions of the day-to-day. -day. So I'm going to talk to you today about a way to think about the work and divide it up so that you can see yourself actually making some progress. If you're familiar with the plan, do, check, act cycle, this uh, 
approach may seem familiar to you, but I think I'll have some perspectives on it that are unique to diversity, equity, inclusion work that I hope you'll find helpful. Uh, the way that I'm going to present this, I want you to actually be answering these questions that I'm going to ask you as we go along so that by the time you get to the end, you'll have a plan of attack and you'll know how you can see the progress that you're making both in the short and the long term. The first question that I have for you is what problem is it that you're trying to solve? For example, the problem I'm going to give an example of throughout this series is trying to eliminate systemic racism. But maybe you're trying to improve accessibility for your disabled students. Maybe you're trying to create a more welcoming environment for your formerly incarcerated students. There's all sorts of big diversity, equity, and inclusion work that we're doing. And your first step is to identify what specifically is it that you're trying to do. The next thing you want to ask yourself is how does that problem show up in your environment? So, for example, if I, the problem I'm trying to solve is systemic racism, and the way that it shows up on my campus are many. One of the ways it shows up is that we're not seeing the same completion rates in our black and brown students as we are with our white students. And so that's just one thing that we're seeing. We are seeing that there are some of the programs at my institution that don't have as great a diversity as some of our other programs um, and asking questions like, why is that? So there's probably a long list of ways that the problem that you are trying to solve shows up at your college. I encourage you to write down as many of those as you can think of. Do a little brainstorming activity and just think of as many ways as you can that you can see evidence of the problem in your environment. And at least three to five, but the more examples that you have, uh, the easier it'll be as you go along with this, uh, with this activity. The next question that you're gonna ask yourself is what you can do to move the needle on this problem. Now, when you think about this, there's lots of things that perhaps could be done by groups, by others, by your institution. Um, but the question that I'm asking here is what you individually can do. It might be something like, you know, joining a committee, um, but I urge you not to get into the joiner trap. The joiner trap is where you just show up, but you don't actually do anything. <laughs> You'll see that this plan is super action oriented and, um, and those actions need to result in results. So uh, often just going to a meeting doesn't result in anything tangible that you can see. If it does, then going to meetings is a good thing. <laughs> but if it doesn't, you want to make sure that it's something that you can actually do to move the needle on the things that you listed under how the problem shows up. When you're thinking about the time window of when you would make that difference, I encourage you to limit the time window. Don't think about sort of forever, but rather what can you do in the next 12 to 18 months to move the needle on one of those items? After I've talked about what success will look like, after I've listed that on my worksheet, the next uh, thing that I want to identify is how would I measure 
that success. So if I'm doing my project of having people read So You Want to Talk About Race, I might measure success in the number of books distributed, in the number of book groups that were formed to talk about the book, maybe in the number of members of the book groups, how many people are actually engaged in these conversations about race. Those are different measures that I could look to and say, hey, um, you know, today this number of people on our campus have read this book and tomorrow that number is going to be, you know, so much bigger. Well, maybe not tomorrow, but at the end of my 12 to 18 months, uh, the number might be twice as many or four times as many. Let me identify what that would look like. If today's number is zero, maybe the end of 12 months, my number is 100. The next question that you're going to want to ask yourself is who can partner with you in this work? When you're doing this large, multi-generational work, it can't be done alone. You have to do it in community with others. And so as you're thinking about the work, who can do the work with you or who can you do it with? Um, maybe there's groups out there who are already doing the work and you can join in with those groups um, as opposed to starting something new and fresh yourself. So thinking about that is important, identifying those people who can help you move the work forward. Whether you're driving to work or you just need a 15-minute think session, we hope the Faculty Focus Live podcast will inspire your teaching and offer ideas that you can integrate into your own course. For more information on the resources included in this episode, please check out the links provided in the episode description.